Today on episode number 464 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, The Transformative Power of Transversal Skills with Kiran Dunn. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Kiran Dunn is the first transversal skills director at Dublin City University, Ireland. This unique role is focused on empowering students to thrive in an increasingly unscripted world by helping them to develop and evidence a wide range of key transversal skills such as creative thinking, futures literacy, leadership, personal agility, data literacy, entrepreneurship, and career visioning, among others. He has a strong interest in understanding emerging trends in both higher education and industry so that students, graduates, employees, and organizations can be future-capable in the context of rapid change. Following his undergraduate education in international marketing and languages, Kiran worked in business development in Ireland and overseas before returning to university to undertake postgraduate and doctoral studies. From here, he became associate professor in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences in DCU, delivering a variety of modules across multiple disciplines, including sociology, social entrepreneurship, creativity, futures thinking, intercultural studies, academic skills, and also Spanish language. His research interests span multiple areas, and his work has been published in top-ranking international journals across a variety of disciplines, including creativity studies, the sociology of sport, intercultural studies, international education, and qualitative research methodology. Kiran is particularly passionate about creativity and is interested in how educational environments can foster this innate human capacity in both students and staff. His Krena podcast includes conversations with scholars from all around the world, exploring how we can foster creativity in higher education and beyond. Kiran, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you very much for having me, Bonnie. It's lovely to be on the show. I am delighted to get to have this conversation, although I am chuckling a little bit because I try not to use this word, megatrends, because it sounds like I should have one of those sports casters or like those big trucks, you know, megatrends. So I'm going to be trying to be serious here for a moment because you do have something serious to tell us, and that is, what are some of the megatrends shaping higher education? And some of the disruption that you're seeing in higher education that can be coming in the next decade and beyond. And could you do it in a truck um, voice? Truck, not a truck voice, but a truck 
newscaster voice. I don't, do you know what kind of voice I'm talking about here? I'm I'm, I'm not sure, but I'll try and I'll try and channel that type of <laughs> okay, voice. Okay, try, if try. If that's what you want. Yes. If that's what you really want. <laughs> it's really what the listeners want. Yes, here on it's what the well, listeners hey, want. It is. It's <laughs> give the people what they want. You should give them. What they um, want. So, so I think I think initially when we talk about the concept of disruptability and looking at what sectors might score high on the possibility of disruption in those sectors. I think higher education uh, certainly scores high on that. And while why the kind of criteria that underpins that might be a bit crude, it does offer a kind of a useful aperture or opening into a conversation. So the idea that, for example, they, they say that you know sectors that are score high on disruptability are sectors whereby the product, and I use that in the broadest sense of that term, so not a neoliberal sense, but that the, the product or the offering hasn't changed dramatically over a period of time, but it has become more expensive. And of course, the price of higher education varies internationally in Europe typically it would be much cheaper than North America, let's say, or the States at least. But nonetheless, we can even talk about opportunity costs. So there's there's absolutely no doubt that higher education is set for high levels of disruption over the coming decade. And what that disruption will look like, I suppose, then is a is a factor of all these different mega trends, if you want me to use that type of voice. But these <laughs> these major trends that are yeah. underpinning the sector. So one of them, for example, would be diversification. So what we mean by that essentially is that there are now organizations who are active in the higher education space that have absolutely no historical activity in that space. And they're typically coming from the tech side of things. And they could be LinkedIn Learning, it could be Alphabet, Meta, it could be Udemy, Coursera, whatever the case is, that they have a huge amount of technological expertise. They have a lot of resources and they have the ability to disrupt the industry if they if they really, really wanted to. And we could end up with a situation, for example, whereby an organization says, we don't need you to have an undergraduate qualification. We want you to have G credits or something like that, and you get them from us. So that's one thing we need to bear in mind. And it is, it, it's good because it prompts us as traditional, let's say, universities, even though we're quite in, in my university, Dublin City University is a, is a, a new relatively new university. Nonetheless, we fall under that broad umbrella, traditional higher education. It prompts us to question what our our fundamental telos is, what our reason for being, our mission is. Anyway, then the second trend then, of course, is around digitalization and COVID just accelerated that trend, but it, it did it in a major way. And that feeds in, of course, to just general levels of high high tech disruption, where there's automation, AI. I was listening to a previous podcast you did when you were talking about chat, GPT, etc. And, and all that, that has the ability to majorly disrupt higher education and, of course, transcend the geographical boundaries that historically defined universities. So the idea that perhaps I could be doing a, a fully online program whereby I do one module from Sydney, one module from Buenos Aires, one module from Stockholm, whatever the case is. And that can might be tracked through blockchain or for transparency or something like that. And then another major trend is around personalization and customization of the student experience. So the recognition that students are increasingly diverse, as in the student body is increasingly diverse, and they're demanding a more customized, personalized learning experience. And I think historically, universities would recognize that there is diversity, but they might necessarily offer, you know, their educational offerings mightn't fully recognize that diversity. But nowadays that is changing at a very significant level. So we have diversification of 
of organizations who are active in the space. We've got the digitalization, automation, AI, and we have a personalization. And when you mix, there's a couple of other ones as well, but they would be the main ones. And when you mix those three together, it really prompts us as people working in higher education to ask, like, what are we about? And particularly, I think the second one around digitalization, after COVID, there was this kind of global phenomenon. A lot of students just didn't come back to campus. And so it's a really useful question for us to say, why would they come back to campus? What are we offering students when they come back to campus that they can't get otherwise? And and like I said, that they are really useful prompts. They can be difficult, but they're very, very useful prompts for us. Yeah, and you were sort of talking, so it's not just the residential experience and what what does that residential give that perhaps an online, but even in the online spaces, what is then unique about your online community and learning environment that would be any different than these other competitors that you mentioned, like a Udemy or Coursera? Or I mean, I just just on a social media network just yesterday bookmarked. I can go take Introduction to Computer Science from Harvard. I can go take you mentioned AI Introduction to Artificial Intelligence from Harvard. And, and so I mean, like, so then what would be different? Not just about what we might think of as a more traditional context for learning, but even as we move into more lowering those geographic boundaries, even that, what is your tell us? What is your reason for being? And if your reason for being, um, and, and I was going to say one last thing before we start into, I know what will be the center, center of our conversation today, but you talked about personalization. And I have tended to be pretty naive, I think, over my I've always been relatively comfortable with technology. And so I can kind of get swept in to when some of these educational technology companies will have high promises for things. And so personalization is one of those things where I think they don't mean what you think they mean. Like they're saying personalization. <laughs> that's actually not their tell us. They, they're saying that on the brochure. Mm-hmm. But me or you or anyone else listening, it's it's oftentimes in my experience, I've been naive to think what is actually being achieved when we're saying that your learning is, quote, per- personalized. And this is where we're on an audio podcast, so I have my air quotes up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that personalization is not always such. But anyway, I don't want to take us too far on a rabbit trail, but just wondering if you have any comments sort of on... Well, and actually, you mentioned blockchain too. And of course, blockchain, I think so much of the tech space has been saying the sky is falling, this, the whole world is going to change, blockchain is going to change everything. And so I, I wonder now if people aren't paying quite as much attention to these radical emergence of different types of artificial intelligence and how quickly they're changing because they go, well, you just said that, whether it was, you know, with blockchain or even further back from there, that when the new millennium hit, what the heck is that called? Y2K. Yes. So those of us that have been around for a while are sort of used to all these, the sky is falling or everything is going to change. You'll never even recognize yourself tomorrow. And so wanting to know what might be unique about about these things. But anyway, that's not... (laughs) That's not the main reason you're here, but I'm going to stop talking and let you comment, and then we'll talk a little more about the main reason you're here. No, I, I, but I, I completely agree with you, and I think it is that 
that question around why would students come back to college as in physically come back onto campus and where is the benefit around it and i think that links into another trend which which essentially is around the depreciation of the value of of knowledge the idea that now knowledge is not this form of highly valuable tradable equity it once was because we can access knowledge from our phones from our laptops instantaneously and so universities again historically they were set up so people could go there and access information and and knowledge but now it's okay well actually i can get that somewhere else and then we have and and that feeds into i think the idea that kind of the half-life of of knowledge and information and which is reducing all the time as well and that in turn feeds into the idea of, of lifelong learning so the narrative that a student finishes their undergraduate qualification or perhaps their master's or whatever, and they'll never study again. They know everything like that's that's completely gone nowadays. And so I think it's about developing kind of relationships with, with students, really meaningful relationships and connections with them that they we can facilitate connections between them and their peers, but also facilitate connections between students and the institution so that as they journey through their life, the institution represents a kind of a, a doyen of, of trust, someone they can go to and know that the information and knowledge and, and skills they acquire there are of value. And I think certainly in many countries, and I'm not, I can't speak or I won't speak around the state specifically, but let's say in Europe, a lot of trust has collapsed in political systems in different ways, in perhaps in organized religion in different ways, in the media in different ways. And I think universities occupy this position that they should they should be these pillars of trust that society can go to and rely upon in a world that's defined by huge levels of uncertainty. This is where I, once again, for anyone who's reading a transcript, need to make it perfectly clear that I'm being incredibly sarcastic. As I say, (laughs) everything is peachy here in the United States. We have the highest level of trust as citizens (laughs) that we have ever had historically. Yes, in in all of the things that you mentioned. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm delighted to hear. (laughs) Yes. Um, So... We, we've looked a little bit at some of the ways that higher education is is both being disrupted, but also has the potential for that to be exasperated as we go. And you have a premise for what might be the types of skills that might contribute better to that lifelong learning and to that value or even the telos of our institutions for higher learning. So talk some about transversal skills. Yeah, so I think I I think I'm the only person in the world who has this job title, which is transversal skills director for any given university. So I'm transversal skills director, the first one for Dublin City University in Ireland, and that's part of a, a huge project that we're running, which essentially is the biggest innovation in teaching and learning in the history of the institution. So we're we're, we're trying to reimagine undergraduate education for this unscripted future. And so the the question that drives me and and my colleagues is really, how can we help students to thrive in an increasingly unscripted world? And while terms like thriving are subjective concepts, from my perspective, thriving means that someone has the ability to imagine, to pursue and to realise a life that they have reason to value and that is of value to their society. That's someone for me who's thriving. So it's not for me to prescribe 
a career onto them. It's really what are your values? How can you imagine this this life that you that you want? And that's contributing to to broader society as well. And so, yes, transversal skills then is the idea. So first of all, we can get bogged down in terminology. Some people call them transversal skills. They can be called transferable skills, 21st century skills, meta skills. Some people call them power skills and human skills. And perhaps humans, they are fundamentally unique to humans. So my job is to identify what these skills should be the what skills all students should have, regardless of what program they're doing, then figure out, okay, how do we actually define and operationalize these skills? Because my own background would be in humanities and social sciences, but I spend a lot of time in the STEM world. And there's this realization as I kind of went from humanities and social sciences over to STEM is that there's really core concepts that people agree on in STEM. I mean, no one disagrees with the periodic table, let's say, and no one disagrees that water is made up of H2O, etc. Whereas in humanities and social sciences, we spend a lot of time discussing and parsing and unpacking and debating core concepts like what is health, what is happiness, what is culture, what is creativity. And yet these things are fundamental to our existence. And so when these skill, a lot of these skills that I oversee or that my job is to identify, for example, creative thinking, ethical decision-making, entrepreneurship, et cetera, they don't lend themselves to one single universal definition. So my remit has been to identify them, then figure out, okay, how can we actually define them, operationalize them in terms of competences? How, how can we identify to what extent colleagues have already been doing these things for a long time. Universities are all around critical thinking. It would be incredibly hubristic of me to show up and say, I'm here to make sure everyone's doing critical thinking. And so we want to make sure that we we surface and acknowledge good practice in these areas heretofore so we can scale them. And then figure out, okay, if there's gaps, how can we actually address those gaps in a consistent way? And I think the two really, really challenging ones are how you can assess these transversal skills. So how do you assess someone's creative thinking ability, for example? How do you assess someone's personal agility, their leadership, their communicative competence? It certainly doesn't lend itself to exams, which I don't know what your university experience was, but mine was based on on exams. And then finally, how do we actually empower the students that they can evidence these skills so they can demonstrate them to external stakeholders be that potential employers or just different external stakeholders. So it's quite a broad remit. And I, I identified 17 transversal skills, which is a prime number that people aren't too fond of. But when I went to them, I said, look, if you want me to get rid of one of them, tell me which one you think I should get rid of. And that's that's a big challenge because they're all important. And so they fall under areas such of ways of thinking, ways of working, tools for working and tools for thriving. And that's why it goes from critical thinking, from futures literacy down to entrepreneurship, intercultural competence into digital and data literacy and project management it includes career visioning, personal agility and health literacy. So it's a very broad church. I'm hearing so much and you're expanding my imagination. This is such a stimulating conversation. So let me start with the first thing that I heard was this tension between STEM fields, which we tend to think about as more concrete, like you said, and and then sometimes the humanities we think about just being more about theoretical and these amorphous things. And yet, if you think about the ways that we might benefit 
if we were to take that theoretical and make it a bit more practical, and I know it makes people uncomfortable to talk about this opportunity cost that you mentioned earlier and the, the realities that to take out these kinds of loans in and, and many of the countries around the world. And even if you don't have to take loans because that's part of a social program, you are giving up something in order to sure. participate in the higher learning. And then with the STEM, I think about so often, I have a nephew who just got his PhD in chemistry, and he works on computational physics to hopefully someday find cures for cancers. And so you would want the STEM fields to be creative, to be expanding their imagination. So it's like if these two seemingly different types of disciplines were to come together, I mean, and I'm sure it's not like I'm not inventing this for the first time, but as you were talking, it was making me think about the ways in which this interdisciplinary thinking really benefits us as a society. Because you talked about earlier your your goal, your telos to have it be not just good for me as a student, what that is going to mean, my own return on investment, if you will, but also good for the world. So I'd love to have you expand a little bit about any of those tensions you're seeing between the more theoretical and seemingly practical and where they benefit and sharpen one another. Absolutely. And I think that that word interdisciplinarity is absolutely key because we know and one of the areas that, you know, I was lecturing in and I'm still very, very passionate about is is creativity and creative thinking. And we know that creativity sparks at the nexus, this point of intersection between different disciplines, between different knowledge sets. So it's really important that we expose students to diverse knowledge sets. Now, the concern there is that are you going to cannibalize their core curriculum, their core discipline by exposing them to multiple different knowledge sets? And there is an equilibrium to be met there. And we need to be mindful of that. But for example, we are certainly gravitating towards that, that with the programs we've launched in the last couple of years are very much around it. interdisciplinarity. We've got, for example, physics with data analytics. We have chemistry with artificial intelligence. We have psychology with disruptive technology. So they are acknowledging the value of occupying that space that exists at that inter- interface between, between dis- different disciplines. So th- I think there's huge value in that. And I think there's, there is huge value in in encouraging, and I don't want to say forcing, but getting people to commit to one agreed definition of something, yeah, and that it's transparent, that it has been exposed. I I, I regularly use this term, kind of the, the friction that polishes the diamond, you know, that it has been exposed to friction that has enhanced it, the final output of this definition or the competence statements that underpin it. And so, for example, if I say to you that I'm I'm good at creative thinking, like, what does that mean? or I'm creative, ultimately, you're the one who will judge if I'm creative. It's not really for me to say if I'm creative. And equally, if I'm if I say I'm a really good communicator, ultimately, you'll be the one to judge if I'm a really good communicator. I might think I'm really good at ethos, pathos and logos, whatever the case is, but I might be or I might think I'm a fantastic listener. and I could be an egregious listener. So these things are social in many ways, and that needs to be recognized. And I think it is completely understandable that people who let's say heretofore have been specialists and experts in specific stem disciplines let's say astrophysics or whatever the case is and and we come to them we say we we really want your students to develop intercultural competence you know i mean what's that about 
Does that make sense within our program? Where does the expertise supposed to reside? Are you saying we should have physicists who are also experts in intercultural competence or, or how does that work? And the same thing can be applied with sustainability literacy, entrepreneurship, ethical decision-making, all of these things. And how do you do that in a consistent fashion across an institution? I think that, so you, you need to recognize there's so much complexity to it because you need to recognize there are different disciplines and different domains and different cultures within them. And yet we're trying to ensure that all students are developing a level of certain level of competence in these transversal skills. So we have to have some flexibility, but also we have to have transparency and consistency underpinning it. And that has been a real, a real genuine challenge that we've been that we've been working with. And it's important to recognize that as well, not to say that these things are easy. These things are hard, but we're doing them because they're they're necessary, because the world in higher education is changing. And the one thing I would say, and this might sound possibly a bit, a bit dramatic, but if we look around the world, and we have huge levels of expertise in many, many, many different disciplines. But if we look around the world, you know, the vast majority of problems that we're facing in the world stem from a lack of transversal skills, a, a gap in ethical decision making, a gap in critical thinking, a gap in creative thinking, a gap in sustainability literacy, a gap in futures literacy, a gap in teamwork and collaboration, a gap in compelling communication, a gap in project management. So surely then it makes sense that we would want to foster these skills in our graduates at a purely personal level and for societal level, and then also in terms of employability as well. The second tension that I heard you speak about had to do with assessment and evidence. And so when it comes to assessment, one of the things that's come up many times on this podcast before is, although I don't think it comes up enough, is the idea that assessment, you can assess learning, but you can also learn through assessment. So there's sort of that that piece of it there. And then you talked a little bit about evidence. And to me, those are similar to the tensions we just talked about, where they're different things, but they benefit from each other as well. What has been your experience with this interplay between assessment and evidence around these transversal skills? Yeah, and, and that's 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 something we're still very much working on, I think. Some transversal skills lend themselves to assessment uh, more so than others. Some of them will demand multiple stakeholders or informants in terms of the assessment, like let's say communication, for example, or even leadership. And I think a big thing is as well is giving students the language. So students may well be, let's say, good critical thinkers or they could be good communicators, but they might actually lack the language to speak to that. And that's a big thing. And that's I think that evidencing piece, a lot of that will come down to how we can actually empower the students to own their own story, you know, to articulate a narrative that is that is relevant to them. It's authentic to themselves. So they're not all coming and saying, I'm a fantastic. If you've got 20, 15 applicants who are saying exactly the same thing, well, then who do you believe? And that's where the, the transparency and assessment kicks in. And that's what we're trying to do to ensure that our students, when they graduate, will have a, a personalized transversal skills profile that is transparent and so the university stands over it and said yeah they've got they have actually fulfilled these type of competences but the problem is if everyone says they're a creative thinker what does that actually look like and i think it goes back to the trust thing i think universities and, and higher education institutions we have to be almost like uh, 
curators of these concepts, these concepts that are abstruse, they're, they're slippery, they're nebulous, but they're so important. And so we need to articulate what we mean by that and stand over it. So that if someone, for example, if a graduate from DCU says, I'm a creative thinker, we need to make sure that they know exactly what that means. It isn't just coming up with new ideas. So someone says, I, I invented a, a glass hammer. Well, that's not actually creative. It's new, but it's not particularly useful or of value or perceived to be of value, unless perhaps you're a glass sculptor, in which case it might be. So there's a, a, another level of subjectivity there and, and domain-specific applications. So the assessment piece, again, is a is a big shift. And to go back, the kind of scholarship of of, of teaching and learning and, and the, the dynamic between teaching and learning and assessment. And for example, we like lectures are go-to historical mod- modality for, for, for teaching. They can be, lectures can be efficient for teaching. They might not necessarily be overly effective for learning. And then what assessment lends itself to that? And let's say we are very much trying to espouse the, the culture of immersive learning, experiential learning, active learning. There's a, we're doing an awful lot of work on challenge-based learning where students would be learning and assessed at the same time in that process. And that's a big shift for any institution. These are big changes because the fact of the matter is people who end up as lecturers in in higher education typically have worked well within that system. The system has suited them, the ability to consume large amounts of information, think critically about it, reproduce it, do some research. That has worked well, but it doesn't work well for, for everyone. And that, again, connects with that trend around personalization that we need to acknowledge that not every student is going to necessarily learn in the same way. And it also raises questions, I suppose, about diverse approaches to assessment, even within a module. And then the waters get very, very muddied indeed. But it is an ongoing, it's an ongoing challenge, but it's a it's a rich challenge to uh, to focus on. You've talked about so many of the challenges and I'm over here giggling a little bit, thinking like you're on a podcast, so you probably can't even be as open as because <laughs> you bring that many people around to have these kinds of conversations in a good way. And I'm sure in some irritating ways, we're going to really dust some things up for each other and, and, and to get to these shared definitions that you talked about and you talked about how important they are. So I'd love for us before we end this part of the conversation to end on some hope and some imagination as you're having these conversations with colleagues and with students, what's emerging for you today that you're reimagining, that you're full of hope about for, I don't know, the next few years? Well, one of the one of the really interesting things about this role, because it took me out of my faculty, so I would have been very familiar with colleagues within my faculty, but not necessarily, there wouldn't necessarily be huge amounts of interaction between colleagues with other fac- faculties. But I, now I've had a lot of that experience. And one of my core values is this idea of collaboration. Um, so if we want to bring in change, because change is difficult. Sometimes we talk about it's like pushing honey up a hill change can be difficult and collaboration is absolutely central to successful change so fostering kind of cultures of collaboration and that's where the interdisciplinarity comes in and that really healthy friction where i listen to you and you listen to me and there's a dialectic as opposed to a debate where i'm not not necessarily trying to convince you we're trying to co-create something together so for example with these transversal skills we created a unique expert internal panel 
comprising staff from all across the university. I think we had about 135 staff involved and they were split into different groups for each transversal skill. And we brought them together and they co-created definitions and they co-created competence statements for each of those definitions as well. And that was an incredibly rich experience. And it was a great opportunity for colleagues to get to know each other across different quasi-siloed areas. So there could be people involved in entrepreneurship in lots of different areas across the university who never knew each other. And I think that's really one key thing in the future to try and maximize the affordances that exist within your institution, to give people a voice, to empower them. I think that's been a really, really positive aspect around it. I think as well, when you're when you're trying to drive change, you, it's really important you listen to people and you understand where they're coming from and you respect them and that they feel heard. And it's a bit like when we do feedback with students, very often we're asking the student, like, was the lecture well-prepared? Was the assessment suitable? Was it engaging? But again, a really important question, I think, is how did the lecture make you feel about you? You know, instead of asking how you feel about the lecture, how did the lecture make you feel about you? Did the lecture make you feel listened to, empowered, respected, that you had a voice, that you had agency? Those things are really important. And these big kind of change management projects, and in, and they're going to happen more and more in the face of this disruption. I think your are your institutional values are key. And I talk a lot around the map is not the terrain. And so the map is the plan or the strategy. And then you're trying to actually, as you start to navigate that terrain, or if it's if it's kind of radical innovation, as you push beyond the boundaries of the map and you find yourself in this uncharted terrain, well, the map then essentially becomes redundant because you've gone beyond the boundaries of it by definition. You can't use it anymore. And so your values are your compass points. And so if you and I disagree on something as we're navigating this uncharted terrain, at least we can go back to our core values and say, we both agreed on this. Yeah, we both agreed on this. Let's figure out, we both agree on this. Let's figure out how where we go from here. So those institutional values, and I, I, I think every institution should spend a huge amount of time teasing them out. Not saying like, oh yeah, we're innovative. I mean, who's going to say we're not innovative? I was in hospital earlier on this evening and on the wall, they had their values and they were identical to any university values, innovation, collaboration, experimentation, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it's what, it's, it's what that actually means, fleshing them out so that if there is divergence and disagreement and some friction, at least we have that we can return to. And that's our starting point because you need that common ground. That's that's really, really important. And so I might, you know, it's probably understandable I would say that because my background is very much in sociology and, and cultural studies and intercultural communication, et cetera. But I really strongly believe that those values are absolutely key as we're trying to navigate this kind of increasingly uncharted, unscripted world. A few months ago, I recommended a song on the podcast, and the title of the song is Don't Lose Sight. And I had to explain to listeners that, because if you listen to all the lyrics, it starts out with this, and it uses a, a, a euphemism for poop, but it's a not a polite word. <laughs> it says, this poop's never going to change. It's never going to change. And But I love the chorus of don't lose sight and that whole idea of you're not losing sight about why you're doing this. So what you're describing here. Kiran, is this, why are we doing it that will help us then be able to have 
this um, shape, these shaping conversations and rooting us in those values. That's so powerful. So thank you for that. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. Mine is quick today. I wanted to recommend a piece which is entitled Professors, We Can and Should Prioritize Compassion with Our Students. And this is by Jessica Larson for Science Magazine. And I heard about this article from Josh Eiler, who pointed out on social media how wonderful it is that an article about compassion is showing up in Science Magazine. And that that goes, I think, back to our earlier in our conversation. So I'm just going to read a little bit, and then uh, I have a second related recommendation about what I'm about to read. So this is toward the end of the article from Jessica Larson, quote, some of my colleagues perceive me as being, quote, too close to the students and think my class is not rigorous enough. In the past, I worried such impressions would affect my chance for promotion and advancement. But I've learned to value my students' growth and learning over others' perceptions. A fellow professor recently asked me, quote, if this works so well, why didn't you do it sooner? All I could say is that vulnerability is really hard. It involves sharing of yourself as fully as you are able, including admitting wrongdoing and acknowledging that you can't always be your best self. Far from being a sign of weakness, It requires a ton of strength. So it's a beautiful piece written by Jessica. I just read you the last couple of paragraphs toward the end there. And a lot of people jumped on social media and were like, who's this fellow professor that's asking you if this works so well, why didn't you do it sooner? And so my final recommendation is don't be that guy. <laughs> this why don't you do why didn't you do it sooner guy? Uh, we need to celebrate each other as our teaching evolves as we are both we we both learn more about teaching and learning. We learn more about ourselves and we sometimes even get to places where we can be vulnerable like that, but not the thing to say. So we're not going to be that guy. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, and I think that compassion piece is is really important. I'm very familiar with Kirsten F's work on compassion yes. and the idea of, of also like fierce, fierce self-compassion. You know what I mean? Like standing up, you know, articulating your your opinion, not just this idea of, of softness and hiding or not, it's never hiding away, but the idea of very often people think of compassion in very soft terms, mm-hmm. but it can be very strong as well. And I think that as well feeds, there's a, there's a quotation. I can't remember the name of it. It might be from a book or a, a long, a long poem perhaps. And it talks about you playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. And I think that's a really important message to get the people. We don't want to encourage arrogance or hubris, but at the same time, we want to acknowledge each each person's individual talents and abilities and their uniqueness, because that's what we, when we want them to thrive. Part of that thriving is to help them identify their, you know, the Japanese concept of our ikigai, that sweet spot, what they're passionate about, what the world needs, what they can get paid for and what they're good at. And so part of that is trying to empower them, to give them that language that they can articulate. This is what I'm about. This is what I care about. And this is what I, how I want to affect change in a positive way in my own life and the life of others, the lives of others as well. So, yeah, the compassion thing is really important. 
Oh, I love that so much. And I heard her work has been recommended a number of times and I haven't read it. And I feel this is just a what perfect timing for you and I to be having this conversation because sometimes I feel like I need to be smaller. And I feel right now like I needed to hear you tell me by quoting this poem that because uh, I have had dear friends tell me that's not the answer here. <laughs> but, but it's very nourishing for your timing to be sharing that. So thank you so much. And I'm going to pass it to you for whatever you'd like to recommend. Yeah, well, um, I love images and visuals because I love storytelling very often images and visuals and pictures offer you this aperture this opportunity to enter into a, a into a story and so there's um there's a photographer well sorry he's like a digital photographer slash illusionist a Swedish chap by the name of, name of Eric Johansson and I use his images a lot in my presentations I tend to try and minimize text if I'm giving presentations and just kind of speak to images and he does the most incredible things I'm not on commission by the way but I would <laughs> encourage people to check out his website Eric Johansson is his name E-R-I-K and he does the most amazing stuff with with digital imagery and these kind of surreal situations. And I think particularly as educators, you look at them and go, well, what does that speak to or what does how does that resonate with me? And then all of a sudden you find yourself sucked into these things. And, and there's several there's one or there's about three of them that particularly of his that I've used a lot. And people who know me would say, oh, yeah, they know the ones I'm talking about, but they're just the most wonderful entry points into stories. I think when stories is a way of connecting with people, our human brain is hardwired for story. And there's those relationships that develop with people through stories. So I would encourage people to check out the work of Eric Johansson and see if they can find some images in there that resonate and speak to them. I cannot wait to go look at his images and so agree with you how you can use them so powerfully to invite people into stories to go on that journey with you. What a delight has been getting to know you a little bit through this experience. And I just appreciate your generosity and your work. I, I, You have just left me so curious, though I want to know so much more. I feel like if you'll come back on the show and hear, tell us how it's going even a year from now, because I imagine so much of it ends up changing as these groups of people you were mentioning working together. I, I Get this feeling that you're not anywhere near being done yet. So I just really no. We have it. we've we've a ways to go. We've, we're still we're we're navigating that uncharted terrain, and uh, yeah, and it's challenging at times. But you know, it's like it, it all goes back to why are we doing this? And we need to be uh, one very valid point is we need to be very careful not to just use students as guinea pigs either you know come sort of the guinea pigization of students like let's try this new modality and look if it doesn't work who cares what we care because we want the students to be having a positive experience so we want to be innovative but we have to do it through an ethical lens as well ensure that there is evidence to support what we're doing and i think that's really important and that goes back to what you were saying about compassion because there's an increasingly a large body of support practices around compassion and self-compassion and so those worlds the kind of abstruse nebulous worlds that let's say i might reside in sometimes and then the worlds of stem they they can merge in very rich and enriching ways. So I think that's important to, to remind ourselves about. 
I'm so glad we kept talking because that is a really good reminder. You're not done and you also won't be done as fast as if we just relied on your expertise as faculty members because there would be important people left out of that. And as you said, important emerging evidence. So, well, thank you so much for this interview and this conversation. I, I It could not have been better timed for me today as we're having it. You've been a gift to me. Thank you so much. Bonnie, thanks a million for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks once again to Kieran Dunn for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to all of you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by Sierra Smith. If you've yet to subscribe to the weekly emails from Teaching in Higher Ed, Those weekly updates will provide the links and the show notes from the most recent episode, as well as some other things that you don't get on the show notes. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.